You're listening to TIP. On today's episode, I'm joined by Brendan Hughes to chat about his new book, Markets in Chaos. Markets in Chaos covers various market crises, including the COVID-19 pandemic, the Latin American debt crises, the South Sea bubble in France, Germany's hyperinflation post-World War I, and many more cases. Brendan is a registered investment advisor for Lafayette Investments and has more than a decade of industry experience in investments and public finance. During this chat, we cover why it's important to study history as investors, what led to the massive hyperinflation in Zimbabwe, the market crisis in Iceland that led to their stock market rising by 900% and then swiftly falling by 95% during the Great Financial Crisis, the lost decade of Japan, and the potential parallels Brendan sees between the Japanese stock market bubble and the markets in the US today, and much more. This was a very interesting discussion that really makes you take a step back and consider how we can best preserve our hard-earned capital during the most extreme market periods. With that, I bring you today's episode with Brendan Hughes. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Welcome to the Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Clay Fink, and today I am thrilled to be joined by Brendan Hughes. Brendan, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks a lot for having me, Clay. I'm very happy to be a guest. Well, I just finished reading your new book. It's titled Markets in Chaos, A History of Market Crises Around the World. And this book received praise from Tom Gaynor and Lauren Templeton, both who have been guests on the podcast in the past. So I'm super excited to dive into this. At the start of your book, you state, this book is useful for those seeking to learn about the history of market crises and individuals who want to learn about protection against downside risks for an investment portfolio. So I think a good place to start is, how about we start with defining what a market crisis is in the first place? I would define a market crisis as a shock to the price of assets. And my book, Markets in Chaos, The History of Market Crises Around the World, documents case studies tied to different types of crises. The book covers classic financial crises tied to the banking system in Iceland, Indonesia, Chile, the United States, and Rome, Italy. And these are scenarios where basically there's an extended period of easy monetary policy and loose oversight. And then there's booming credit creation that coincides with rising asset values. It's a very similar story in each case. And eventually, interest rates are increased in an attempt to quell inflation. And then all the companies and things that were doing crazy things when money was cheap end up getting into into trouble. And we've seen that right now after about 15 years of easy monetary policy uh, following the global financial crisis. And then the other types of market crises, there's cases that uh, review market bubbles in France and Japan where the quoted price of assets just far outstrip fundamentals. Citing an example that I note in my book, in the epic market bubble in Japan in the late 1980s, what some consider to be the greatest in history in terms of total market capitalization impact and uh, recovery time, the Imperial Palace, which if you don't know, the residence of the emperor of Japan, was reported to have been worth more than the entire state of California, which is 
just hard to comprehend, but this was a crazy time in, in Japan. And then there's also crises documented that are tied specifically to macroeconomic event triggers, such as COVID-19 in the United States and a, a few hyperinflationary scenarios, such as in Zimbabwe and Germany. And citing an example, uh, in the German hyperinflationary episode in the uh, 1920s, it was reported that the price of meals at restaurants was different by the time someone received their food as compared to when they were ordered. Now, it, that's just like almost impossible to fathom. And, you know, if you're living in a developed country and things have been relatively stable, but we're talking about Germany, we're not talking about some small country. So those types of things can happen in anywhere. But yeah, the book covers those types of situations. And I think it's a good reminder that a lot of people look at what they've seen in their lifetime and they say that this is what always happens. But that's not the case. Sometimes what's happened recently and more broadly in someone's lifetime, that can in fact be an aberration. And I think that that's important to think about. And that's that's one of the main reasons that I wrote this book. I think it's important for people to know those types of things. I totally agree. You have some great points there. Just to give people an idea of what types of things can happen. And uh, people, I think, just generally have this bias where like, you know, these terrible things that happen to other countries. Oh, that'll never happen in the U.S. And, you know, people just have this sort of bias where, you know, things tend to be the way they've recently been. I also think just people look at even just the past decade. If an investor started investing just in the past decade and they'll be like, oh, well, this worked really well during the 2010s. So they sort of assume that it's going to continue to work. Before we dive into some of the examples here, I'd love for you to just talk more about this importance of studying history because you know you mentioned the recency bias that people tend to have but talk more about these benefits that we can receive from studying broader history and diving into some of these more extreme examples of market crises i think it's really important to study history and mark twain is often credited with coining the phrase history doesn't repeat itself but it often rhymes as i was working my way through writing this book and for any listeners out there you start to notice patterns that have happened for thousands of years. It's actually crazy how similar some things have happened. And it's just really interesting. But as an investor, I think it's critical to have an understanding of what happens in the past so we can better anticipate the present and future in terms of potential ranges of outcomes, in terms of what happens to assets, government responses, and investor psychology. And like some may be surprised that the Roman response to the financial crisis in 33 AD, so that was over 2,000 years ago, it was very similar to what happened to the United States in what they did in the, the response to the global financial crisis. And that's inject massive liquidity into the system and keep interest rates very low. Like, so you see, like in a span of 2,000 years, people are doing the same things. And that's a recurring theme that I cite throughout Markets and Chaos. And during the COVID-19 pandemic, we kept hearing that this was an unprecedented event. I don't want to downplay you know, some of the negative things that came out of COVID-19 in any way, but with the press kept saying that this was unprecedented, and that's just a very untrue statement. And I, like, I cite the, the Black Death as a reference because in the mid-1300s, between 30 and 60% of all Europeans were estimated to have been killed. And that's a wide range because we don't they didn't have the same 
ways of tracking data that we do now in, in the mid 1300s. And also between 75 million and 200 million people globally were reported to have been killed and the pre-pandemic population was just 475 million at that time. So obviously this was, you know, a world altering event and it really it took 150 to 200 years for the populations to recover from this event. So I don't want to downplay what happened related to COVID-19, particularly for the, the people that knew someone that, that died or, or something of that manner. But we've seen these these things before and each time they've impacted the world in different ways. Most recently, like related to COVID-19, I think some things that, that came out of that were to some extent, you know, hybrid work is here to stay. Like things like mobile ordering and such, those trends were already in place before the pandemic, but they were accelerated. And like looking back at scenarios like the Black Death in the mid 1300s, like there was huge world altering forces. Like there was a, a labor shortage that lasted for hundreds of years because of this. So in some ways, it's difficult to compare an event like that so long ago to what happened now. But I think it's important to just look at it. And I think you can better project like the range of things that, that can happen coming out of it if you have that knowledge going into it. Let's dive into one of the somewhat more recent ones. You mentioned Rome and the Black Death. Let's dive into Zimbabwe and their hyperinflation event. And this is actually considered to be the second most severe period of hyperinflation in modern history behind Hungary. Hungary's hyperinflation event in the 1940s. How about we define what levels of inflation are considered to be hyperinflation? And then also paint a picture to... How often do these sort of occurrences happen throughout history, these hyperinflation type scenarios? Hyperinflation is often defined as a period of rapidly rising prices for goods and services when price increases usually measure uh, 50% month over month. But really in practical terms, hyperinflation is basically when money stops being useful. I think that that's a better term. Like when citing that example in Germany in the 1920s, where you, you order food and then the, the price is different 15 minutes later, money is not useful in those situations. And as I documented in my book, uh, Markets in Chaos, in 2008, at the peak of the uh, Zimbabwean hyperinflationary crisis, inflation was reported to have been 79.6 billion percent month over month. That's difficult to comprehend when, you know, in a country where people are complaining about what inflation was 10 or 11 percent, uh, you know, that's not good either, but slightly below 80 billion percent. And I noted some of the most notable hyperinflationary episodes in recent history, meaning like the, the past 100 or so years. And that includes Germany in the 1920s, Hungary in the 1940s, Yugoslavia in the 1990s, Zimbabwe in the 2000s and Greece in the 1940s. And hyperinflation usually occurs as results of some combination of war, economic turmoil, high national debt levels, excessive money printing, political instability, and loss of confidence in the monetary system. And how did this, you know, end up happening in Zimbabwe? You know, we see these cases of just terrible things happening for different countries, but to see hyperinflation, this is like a very extreme type of scenario. So how did this end up playing out for Zimbabwe? 
Yeah, so I can walk through the hyperinflation events in Zimbabwe. The the seeds for hyperinflation in the country were planted when the government launched uh, land reforms that resulted in Zimbabwe seizing white-owned farms and transferring this property to local Black individuals that lacked farming experience. So once this happened, there was a a food shortage and uh, foreign investment dried up because people didn't have confidence in that their assets weren't going to be confiscated. And then real estate values were obviously negatively impacted by this. And as is typical in hyperinflationary scenarios, the government was increasing national debt. So in, in the 2000s, the Zimbabwe's economy you know, started to go downhill. Basic consumer staples were in short supply, like is typical in hyperinflationary scenarios. Inflation increased and in confidence and the local government eroded and people started leaving Zimbabwe in large numbers. So as usually happens when these types of scenarios start to play out, uh, the government responded by printing more money. And this is a classic response to these types of scenarios and it ultimately leads to more inflation. So as previously mentioned, inflation was estimated to have peaked around 80 billion percent month over month. And uh, during this hyperinflationary period, some economists estimate that between 75 and 90 percent of the local population was unemployed. That's, again, difficult to to wrap your head around. Almost nobody in the country was working. And Zimbabwe has never really recovered from this period. And I think that that is tied to trust in the government and the the corruption that, that, that has persisted. They've periodically attempted to implement various new currencies and they haven't worked out. And uh, international investors and lenders have you know, largely neglected the, the markets for a long time now, and I think rightfully so. You mentioned just the trust eroded. And when citizens of a country, they lose trust of the political establishment. That's sort of when the release valve is let go and it's gone. Like they can't, you know, sever. Once trust is lost in a currency, you really can't get it back. And it reminds me of countries today that have higher levels of inflation, but they don't have quite the levels of what would be defined as hyperinflation. Turkey and Venezuela are two countries that come to mind. What do you think keeps enough trust in a currency that like that, the sort of in between where it's not stable, it's not hyperinflating? What's keeping that release valve from sort of being let go? I think it has a lot to do with confidence in, in the government itself. And laterally, that, that flows over to what's going on with the currency. I, I talked about that when I was documenting Germany in the 1920s, because I was comparing and contrasting the German and Zimbabwean hyperinflationary scenarios. And like ultimately, Germany got their hyperinflation under control. And I, I think that that has a lot to do with people had more confidence in the German government as compared to um, Zimbabwe. And you can throw modern day Venezuela in there as well. Like, cause Germany, they ultimately rolled out a, a new currency and they said that it was backed by hard assets. But if everyone went to go said, we're going to go try and retrieve these hard assets all at once, there's no way that they would have actually been able to fulfill on that. So I think it, it had a lot to do or it has a lot to do with the trust in the political institutions. Another one of the chapters, you dive into 
Iceland. This is a quite small country and this isn't a story that I had heard of before. A lot of people have heard about the story of like tulip mania, even Zimbabwe. People hear about the hyperinflation event there and people are quite familiar with COVID-19 since it's so recent. So please tell the story of Iceland and some of the things you picked up in studying their crisis. The story of what happened uh, to Iceland during the, the global financial crisis in 2008 and 2009 is, is really interesting. And if you want to dive more into the global financial crisis, I would recommend looking at Iceland. Even though it's a small country, as you noted, they have 375,000 people. The country GDP is about 26 billion. So in other words, it's a very, very small in terms of both population and size of the economy. But the story of what happened there in 2008 and 2009 is, is really interesting. And I think business classes can learn a lot from studying it. Iceland was one of the hardest hit countries uh, during the global financial crisis. And like the seeds were leading up to the, the global financial crisis. Like Between 2003 and 2004, the Iceland stock market skyrocketed 900% in the span of one year. And like this is a recurring theme that I document throughout my book, but there's a period of easy money, which as we saw during the most recent 15-year period where, where there was easy money, when this happens, people pile into basically anything but cash because cash doesn't pay a lot. So people you know, buy up everything else. And the money supply in Iceland expanded by tenfold in the 14-year period ending with the, the global financial crisis. And I think a lot of these types of events have, have really been possible because I tie it back to the huge moment in 1971 where the United States severed the US, the link between the US dollar and gold. And that has really, I think, facilitated a lot of these you know, ultra easy monetary policies and also just piling on massive amounts of debt at the, the federal and business levels. Yeah. So what happened with the banking system within Iceland and then ultimately led to the collapse of this massive bubble in the stock market and their economy? Yeah. So what happened in the banking sector was, was astounding, even by historical banking sector collapses. The entire banking sector in the country basically fell apart in one week. In the course of just three days, the government effectively nationalized the three largest banks and the three largest banks made up the vast majority of the entire banking sector. But one of the core issues that led to the demise of the Icelandic uh, banking system was the banks started to increase their reliance on foreign deposits. And we've seen this happen. And I documented this, like this was going on during the Asian financial crisis as well. But Leading up to the global financial crisis, capital flows to Icelandic banks exploded. And this was owing to investors searching for yield. So during the easy monetary, you know, when interest rates are low in, in a lot of countries, they'll go to places that are offering, you know, a bit more yield, like in, in this case, Iceland. So when things start, when it started to become apparent that there was trouble brewing around the world in, in the global financial crisis, these foreign deposits quickly fled. And these were deposits that these banks were now relying on for stability. So you also had various problems, like there was increasingly exotic financial instruments such as CDOs, which are collateralized debt obligations, being rated as investment grade, and similar to what we saw in the United States. Th things like that. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. 
Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A dot com. The Holy Grail of Investing, the new book by Tony Robbins and co-written by investing legend Christopher Zook, reveals the secrets of alternative investments like private equity, venture capital, energy, real estate, sports franchises, and more. It features exclusive insights from investing titans who collectively manage more than $500 billion, including Robert F. Smith, Vinod Kosla, Michael B. Kim, and many others. In the holy grail of investing, you'll discover how to take advantage of the trillions flowing into private equity by becoming an owner of firms that actually manage the assets and share in the revenue they generate, how to take advantage of the two to three times higher returns of private credit as an alternative or complement to bonds, how to invest in the energy evolution and ride the wave of trillions in global investments, how investments in private real estate can work as an inflationary hedge and source of tax-efficient income, and how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All right, back to the show. Related to Iceland, in your book, you also talk about how the fractional reserve system is essentially, you know, it's a very flawed system. And this is really relevant to Iceland because it isn't the only country in the world that has a fractionally reserved system. It applies globally and including in the U.S. So could you talk more about these uh, flaws that you point out in your book of the fractional reserved banking system? Fractional reserve banking is the commercial banking system that's still employed around the world today. And um, I'm pretty sure the average citizen isn't even aware that when they deposit money into a bank, the bank often lends this money to someone else. So the entire system is predicated on the idea that not too many people are going to go and try and claim their deposits at the same time. But as we know from studying various events in history, this is often not 
the case, not often, but it happens during crises. People go and try and get their deposits. But a quick summary of the fractional reserve banking system in, in terms of numbers is that banks effectively earn one to 2% uh, return on assets, and then they leverage these low returns, like approximately at a 15 to one ratio, so they can juice their return on equity. And commercial banks facilitate this heavy use of leverage by printing money that basically out of thin air. So the extreme leverage required to operate a a bank is, is also why banks go bust quickly when conditions deteriorate. And in Iceland, this blow up happened in in a week. Sometimes it takes longer to to develop. But one of the core issues with the modern fractional reserve banking system is that the interests of private commercial banks and central banks, they're just not aligned. Private commercial banks care about how much profit they produce, irrespective of how their money creation impacts the health of the domestic currency or financial system. So banks inevitably get into trouble owing to their flawed business models. And when this happens, governments look to uh, these institutions and they ask, you know, is this is this company too big to fail? And we saw this in the United States during the financial crisis as well. And if, if the answer is no, these firms are allowed to de- declare bankruptcy and consumers are then reimbursed up to a certain amount if they're insured by the FDIC or whatever the local equivalent of FDIC is. And if the firm is deemed to be too big to fail, the, the government bails these these companies out by borrowing huge amounts of new, newly created paper money and then lending it to this firm. And most consumers aren't aware of what, what happened, but they've just been taxed by the government in the form of higher inflation. And this is a, it's frustrating to read about this and study it because this is just a recurring cycle that, that keeps happening. And I don't think that most people are aware that they're being taxed in this manner. Yeah, I had a comment here related to Iceland. You mentioned in one year, their stock market went up by 900%. And then uh, if I'm remembering correctly from your book, it proceeded in the collapse of the banking system, the stock market fell by 95%. I think it's like such an important reminder to keep in mind of our recency bias and remember that Ever since the great financial crisis, we've very much been in a period of easy money in the United States. And because of this easy money period, you see this credit expansion, you know, rising debt levels and the money supply is essentially expanding and expanding. Part of that, at least, is going towards uh, the growth of financial assets. And I think it's just important to really tame expectations and just remember that, you know, credit, this credit expansion can lead to essentially the illusion of wealth. You might feel wealthy you know, checking your accounts and checking your, your investments, but just know that when that expansion goes away, then, uh, your investment values might not be a year from now as near as much as what they're worth today. And that's not like me calling for a stock market correction or anything. It's just to, I think, tamper those expectations and keep in mind where we are at in history and how that relates to past periods, such as what happened in Iceland. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Clay. And, and thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, when we have extended periods of easy, easy monetary policy, it often leads to asset price inflation. And this is not a type of inflation that is is covered. Like when you know CNBC and those channels, they're covering consumer price in inflation. Like that's what they're always citing as what inflation is. But asset price inflation is very real, like things like real estate values and and such. And that's not captured in uh, consumer price inflation. And it's when people cite just consumer price inflation as being inflation, that's not a 
remotely close to a full depiction of the whole picture as to what's going on. I wanted to move on to Japan. You studied their lost decade from 1991 through 2001. Japan's stock market, it peaked around a PE of 60 in 1989. And people are pretty familiar with this lost decade of Japan as uh, recently we've seen that, you know, still today, there's the Nikkei trades below where it was in 1989. And it sort of points to what can happen over, uh, you know, when a market's in a bubble and then they're facing all these issues that we're going to be diving into there. And uh, what led to their stock market crashing and correcting was the central bank raising interest rates and tightening financial conditions. And uh, from the end of 1989 to the bottom of the market all the way in 2003, a very choppy ride along the way, but it ended up bottoming in 2003. The market fell by 80%. So talk to us about this Japanese bubble and the lost decade that followed for them. Yeah, so I'm pretty sure the Japanese index just in, in the past few months, like maybe in June, passed, surpassed the levels in 1989. So you basically, for over 30 years, you would have earned effectively nothing in, in equities in a country. And I think that this is a very important point to hone in on because U.S. investors have only ever known stocks to go up for most people's, most people's lives. And I think one of the takeaways from my book is to think more about country diversification just because of this example in Japan. But at the peak of the Japanese bubble in 1989, Japanese real estate was valued at uh, four times the value of the United States real estate, despite Japan only being 4% the size of the United States. And you know, as, as you mentioned, the equities in the country also had a PE ratio of 60. The Imperial Palace was valued more than the state of California. It was, by any measure, an epic bubble, even compared to some of the more memorable bubbles in, in history. But my big takeaway from this entire series of events is to think more about country diversification because history suggests that a variety of factors can prevent you know equities or uh, real estate in a given country from you know perpetually rising like we've seen in the United States for a long period of time. People talk a lot about inflation, especially nowadays, but you don't hear too much about deflation. Deflation is actually something Japan has been, it feels like fighting tooth and nail ever since the mid 1990s. And deflation especially brings its own host of issues as inflation does as well. And you'd think after a certain period of time that a country uh, as developed as Japan would be able to figure this out. So what makes it so difficult for them to, you know, manage their economy and, you know, manage that deflation that they're working against? Yeah. And I think I used the term in my, in my book, they've been stuck in a deflationary trap that has lasted for several decades. And what's happened is that a lot of money w was printed, but people, uh, businesses and individuals in, in Japan have just not been convinced to invest this money. So they came to believe, at least for several decades, that cash will be worth more tomorrow than it is today, owing to these deflationary pressures. So it becomes really difficult to convince businesses and, and people to invest when they haven't seen a return on assets for a really long time. So it becomes somewhat of a self-fulfilling prophecy that people just keep hoarding cash, not, not investing it because they don't see any reason to because you know in, in recent history, nobody's earned a return on it. And that 
has you know been a, a short synopsis of the, the deflation that Japan has faced for a long time. And then what are the key factors that make uh, deflation playing a role in Japan? Whereas, you know, for example, the United States, we're dealing with inflation. What are the key drivers there? Yeah, I, I want to point out that there's two different types of deflation. The deflation that we've seen in Japan for several decades is, is the more dangerous kind of deflation. And that's uh, demand-driven deflation. And that's where, as I talked about, people and businesses choose not to invest. The government can print more money, try and do things to you know get people to invest the money. But they're saying, we're not going to invest. We haven't seen a, a return on this. We're just going to hoard money. This is really different from supply-side deflation. In the US in the 2010s, we didn't have deflation, but we had low inflation. And that was due to a lot of it was tied to things like globalization. But there, there's also been technological advances where it's kept inflation relatively low. You had companies like Alphabet where they would just, you know, they're offering their services for at least free in monetary costs. They'll, they'll use an advertising business model. But those things kept inflation relatively low, along with what I think has been a long trend of globalization that's being somewhat reversed now. But this is similar to the supply side deflation that we saw in the United States in the 1870s and in the 1880s. It was also tied to uh, technological innovation at that time. And you had you know, some of the, the business luminaries of that age, uh, Rockefeller, Carnegie, and, and Jay Gould. They effectively opted to take additional market share instead of raising prices, you know, kind of similar to some of the technology giants today. And I don't view that supply side deflation as as being a bad thing in a lot of cases. Like, I I don't know. A lot of people are not going to complain about getting free shipping. Like, that's not a problem. Whereas it's a big problem if people are not investing money. And in the demand-driven deflation as a you know, a final way to, to wrap this up. There's fewer dollars chasing chasing the same amount of goods and services and that leads to a decline in prices. Do you think that population growth plays a role here? Because, you know, when you think about an expanding economy, you can have increasing productivity and then you can just have more people sort of in the workforce. And the U.S. has had this tailwind of, you know, foreigners coming in and moving to the country, whereas Japan, it seems like their birth rate is essentially leading to their population. I haven't looked at the the longer term charts, but maybe their population is declining. Is that is population also yeah. an important factor here? I think that that can tie into perhaps the psychology like uh, that, that could probably feed into people being more pessimistic about the business prospects and leading them to, to not invest. So I think in an indirect sense, you're correct in that line of thinking. And we've talked about the easy money policy and the way this sort of plays into these you know market bubbles market corrections that follow and i can't help but think uh you know the japanese bubble it it kind of halted because of you know came crashing down because of tightening monetary conditions higher interest rates do you see any parallels between japan at that 1989 period in the u.s say in 2021 2022 where the u.s has now raised interest rates and obviously seeing some headwinds on that front and tighter monetary conditions I do see some general parallels between uh, the United States and in Japan, like in the present day. And a few similarities that I note are 
the the bloated fiscal structure. Like uh, Japan has perennially been one of the most indebted countries, and the United States balance sheet, at least in, in the present day, is not in good shape either. So they're, they're similar in that sense. And we also both have aging populations that that's an issue. And um, the recent policies in the United States have been less hospitable to immigrants. And Japan has for a long time now been one of the least hospitable countries in terms of immigration. It's, it's very hard to immigrate to Japan. But in a more optimistic sense, at least from, a, from being a, a United States citizen, I, I do want to cite what I think is an important difference. And that's tied to innovation. One of the problems that I, I find when I'm looking at Japan is if I want to have a quick idea of what's going on in a country in terms of innovation, I'll just I'll look at the list of most valuable companies because I can tell you a lot about what's coming out of the country, right? Like, what are they producing? Well, when I look at the list of Japan's most valuable companies, there's not a lot of what I would deem to be good companies and sectors that I would seek to have exposure to. There's a, a few ones like Sony and, and Nintendo, but most are in the old world economy, like automobiles, like sim- similar to what's happened to Germany. I remain very optimistic about the United States in the sense that I'm, I have high conviction that a lot of the, the best innovation is, is still coming out of the United States, at least in, in terms of sectors that I deem to be attractive, like technology. Like I mean, you look at the list of United States' most valuable companies, you have a, a lot of good companies in the technology sector, which have more attractive financial attributes as compared to, you know, old world companies like automobiles. After reading this chapter on Japan in your book, you know, I couldn't help but wonder, you know, is that where the U.S. is at today? And I wanted to share some statistics that I pulled here. Uh, We mentioned that Japan's P.E. peaked at around 60. So it's very high uh, levels that, you know, offer very low uh, perspective returns without, you know, these very high growth assumptions in the future. And today in the U.S., the Schiller P.E. is around 29. And you hear so many people calling for some call it the super bubble. You know, it's just this massive uh, bubble in light of the easy money era. But I would also argue that these great companies that the U.S. has, the Microsofts, the Apples, the Amazons, I would argue that many of these great companies, they deserve to trade at higher prices, especially when you're comparing to many of the older economy companies. Like I would argue that Apple deserves to trade at a higher P.E. than uh, many auto manufacturers. And, you know, you can't just compare a company and their how uh, richly valued or overvalued they are solely based on the PE. I think that is one really, really important thing that so many people just overlook. Or if someone has a view of a super bubble, they'll just point to the PE. And, uh, you know, you have to be very careful with making these very uh, basic and simple assumptions, in my opinion, at least. And uh, just before we hopped on the call, I noticed that your book mentioned that the Japanese stock market it increased by 900% in the 15 years leading up to the bubble and you know I'm like well let's see what the US has done in the past 15 years. So I'll first mention that this is sort of like a 15 years is kind of a cherry pick number because 15 years ago was the depths of the financial crisis. So like, you know, stocks were very low at that period. But regardless, just for comparison's sake, the S&P 500 is up just over 360 percent. And then I'm like, okay, well, let's look at the Nasdaq because that's much more heavily weighted towards the companies that did exceptionally well. And the Nasdaq is up over 1100 percent since that time. So with all that said, I'm curious if you agree that U.S. markets 
markets are nowhere near where Japan was in 1989, and it's much more reasonable valuations. I want to start by saying that I, I actually don't look at PE ratios when looking at valuations. And I know that that's different because like, a lot of uh, PE ratio is almost universally considered to be the most quoted metric in terms of valuation. But I struggle personally to, to understand why this is the case. Like I look at uh, free cash flow yield. That to me is the most important metric because uh, not all and this is contrary to popular belief, but not all earnings arrive in cash. If the earnings don't allow you to repurchase shares, pay a dividend, invest in the business or make an acquisition, I don't understand what good these you know, supposed earnings are. But it, relative to earnings, cash flows are much harder to manipulate because over time, the cash that comes in the door is just the cash that comes in the door. Whereas accounting earnings can be manipulated by a variety of factors such as understating impairment, which is rampant in sectors such as banking and uh, changing the classification of operating expenses to extraordinary expenses and, and things like that. So looking at free cash flow yields in the U.S. market today, I don't think it's, uh, at least in my view, a bubble like Japan in the 1980s, but not bargains like you know during the, the global financial crisis. But as you alluded to, that's a blanket assessment. It varies a lot you know, based on individual companies. But what I will say is I don't think that some investors uh, that have been investing since well before the arrival of the internet have come to appreciate the growth that can be seen in some areas such as software that you kind of alluded to in, in your statements. They can at times justify what could be perceived as maybe a, a relatively high valuation. Like just to provide a little context on that, before the advent of the internet, it would not have been possible for a company to go from being invented to having hundreds of billions of dollars of profitable cash flows in you know the span of a couple of decades or less. And we've, we've seen companies do that. I mean, the Metas, the Googles, in the span of you know, just a few decades or in Google's case, a, a, a little bit longer, these companies have amassed hundreds of billions of dollars in, in profitable cash flows from nothing. Like, so most of the time you would have looked at those types of companies and said, oh, this is expensive. Well, sometimes those companies can grow at rates that justify those multiples. Now, the, the difficulty is projecting these types of companies is more difficult than like a legacy consumer staple. But if you hit on one or two of these, it can make up for a series of moderate misfires elsewhere. And I think in terms of valuations, you also have to be certainly careful in looking at valuations by sector because like it's perhaps counterintuitive, but sectors like semiconductors where there's inherent cyclicality, often they're the most undervalued when their cash flow ratio, their near-term price to cash flows is the highest. Like So saying, I don't pay that much attention to what is going on in the overall market in terms of you know what is the headline you know, PE or, or price to cash flow. I'm looking at more individual situations and, and things like that. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. 
You can add the Fundrise Flagship Fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash WSB. That's fundrise.com slash WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise Flagship Fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify dot com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. You alluded at, towards the start of our conversation that what the Romans did 2000 years ago are the same things, a type of uh, policy decisions policymakers are making today. And you see, uh, you know, these cycles of human nature playing such an important role and human nature uh, generally doesn't change. And, you know, people uh, aren't going back and learning from these past uh, mistakes. And, you know, human nature is just kind of underpinning what's going behind these decisions. And I'm super curious in studying all these periods, what are some of the most universal things that are probably the most important to take away in studying uh, all these market crises? 
Yeah, that's a, a great thing to bring up. And I, I talk about that some uh, at the end of my book. I in- include a list of you know what I think are some important takeaways. And I think perhaps the most important, if not one, one of the most important thing is I never attempt to time the, the overall market because like, and this happens during every crisis, like pe- people get scared and they sell out at the bottom during these market events. And then they miss all the returns for the next 20 years. Like the statistics on the way the returns work over time are just staggering. All of the returns that an investor earns are, are just in the few days that nobody expects the markets to, to go up. Like I included a, a data point between 1930 and 2020, if you had just stayed invested in an S&P 500 equivalent over that period, you would have earned a, roughly a 17,700% return. But if you were an investor who just sat out the 10 best days of the market per decade over that period, you would have earned a cumulative 28% return. So if you miss the few best days, you are nothing in equity. So you can't, if you are going to invest in equities, you can't panic when these types of, of things happen or else you shouldn't be invested there. You, you won't earn anything. And my book goes through various implosions in, in the banking sector across countries in timelines. And at least to me, that's why I choose not to seek out businesses that uh, require leverage to earn a return just because that they go bust quickly when things go south. And aside from banking, some other sectors where this is applicable include investment banks and property developers. And I don't know if you've seen what's been going on in China the last few years, but the, the property developers have a lot of the a lot of them have been going bust because of the inherent leverage. And then I have a lot greater appreciation after you know going through this exercise uh, for businesses that require little in the way of capital to run their business. And that's because capital-like businesses can quickly adjust their cost structure in times of crisis. And this was really important during the recent COVID-19 crisis because companies weren't bringing in any revenue for, for a period of time. So if you're not bringing in any revenue and you can't adjust your cost structure, that's a problem. But these types of things do happen. And that to me is certainly important. Look for businesses with strong pricing power. Uh, that's because businesses with pricing power can push through price increases and in, in times of elevated inflation. So if you have crazy scenarios, you know, really high in inflation. If your product is important to a consumer, you can charge more for it. Country diversification is important, particularly after studying you know, Japan, where nobody earned a return in equities and bonds for over 30 years. And I also cited a few other examples, South African and Zimbabwean property at various times, you would have had your assets confiscated there. So I think country diversification is is important. And I think it's also important to challenge conventional wisdom. From my studies, it's people generally tend to assume what's happened recently or in their lifetime is is what always happens. But it's possible in like a longer historical context, what happened recently could be the aberration. So it's important to at least understand that because then if you see some structural shift you can understand, you know, is this is this actually a, a weird thing? Maybe what was happening recently was out of the ordinary. And I think, like citing a recent example, the extreme monetary policy of the last fifteen years—that was weird. But like people that grew up in that, they would have said, 
oh, this is this is normal. You know, free money everywhere for a really long time. That's that's normal. But if you've studied markets over a long time, that's not that's not normal. And just to wrap this up, uh, I think studying all these things and being able to say we've seen this before, you can better construct an all weather portfolio that can withstand extreme shocks and be more comfortable operating in a crisis when it it does strike because fundamentals usually go out the window when it does happen and you can take advantage of some opportunities. I love how you mentioned, you know, the recent period could be an aberration, just like a total outlier in the broader data set. And it reminds me of the chapter in Morgan Housel's book, The Psychology of Money. I believe the chapter is titled No One's Crazy. And essentially everyone, not everyone, but like a lot of people invest based on their experience at some certain point in their lives. So like when you think about someone that lived through the Great Depression, well, there's probably a good reason why they uh, are so financially conservative. They can see what can happen in these more extreme scenarios. And you can see, oh, well, this person's going out and taking crazy risks, buying uh, profitless companies or whatever else that they say are going to triple overnight. Well, it's like, oh, well, you know, they've seen that in their experience in the markets. And they think, you know, of course, it's going to happen again. And having that recency bias. And I think it points to just why it's so important to, you know, read these books and read about these perspectives of others and what's happened in other countries. And just learning about Japan, for example, and how their market's gone nowhere in 30 years. Like it just really humbles you. And like, again, like I mentioned earlier, just a reminder to tamper expectations. So Brendan, I also think it's important to touch on the energy crisis from 1973 through through 1980 in the United States and how that may be relevant to the U.S.'s current situation today. So talk to us more about the energy crisis from the 70s and how this may or may not have parallels to today. Yeah. And I'll just walk through what happened in that period because there there are a lot of parallels and some things that are directly applicable to what have happened the last few years. Kicking off, there there were a few important differences between today and the 1970s. And for one, the global energy market looks a lot different. The United States is a much bigger energy player today. And that's because energy production in the U.S. really took off with the rise of uh, shale oil. I think it was about 15 years ago. But the other key difference today relative to that period is that government balance sheets are in much worse shape than they were at that time. But the 1970s was uh, an era that most people think about as a stagflationary era. And stagflation is a period of low growth and high inflation. And during the, the years 1973 and 1982, there were three technical recessions. So the, the economy was constantly in and out of recession. But one of the parallels that is strikingly similar to today, uh, in 1973, Syria and Egypt attacked Israel in what would become known as the Yom Kippur War. In light of you know what's happened in, in, in the last few months, it's, the parallels are, are obvious. But at that time, this really was a sent shockwaves through the oil market, given OPEC's uh, huge influence at that time. And this was before the United States became a, a huge energy player. But in 1973 and 1974, over that one year period, the price of oil went from 250 to, to 1150. And I, I think that today, there's been a more muted impact on oil owing to the more diversified sources. Like the United States uh, can ramp up production if needed. If OPEC was the only game in town, 
I think that you may have seen something similar to this rise that we saw. But at that time, there were widespread oil shortages and governments responded with uh, price and wage controls, which I document throughout my book. And that always increases inflation. And another important topic that's relevant to today is labor unions. And at that time, labor unions, they were in full force and that was putting upward pressure on inflation. And when President Reagan in a early 1980s, he, he launched a, a well-documented campaign against labor unions in an attempt to stifle inflation. And most people think that that was really the start of the long-term decline of labor unions that, that only really has re- retrenched in, in, in the last few years. And we've seen some wage in, inflation, I think, it, at least if, if it persists, that's going to be structural. But Reagan also, he attempted to stabilize energy prices by deregulating the price of oil. And that led to the non-OPEC producers. They were then incentivized to produce oil. So they ramped up production. And yeah, I don't think that that should be particularly surprising, given that they were then incentivized to do so. But to wrap up this uh, this scenario in the 1970s and 1980s, uh, I'd be I have to at least mention Fed Chairman Paul Volcker, who is very famous. People always cite Volcker these days because he raised interest rates to 20 percent in 1981 to, to stamp out inflation. And the, all of this was ultimately successful. And by 1983, after a decade of ele- elevated inflation, it did eventually come down to about 3%. Since you mentioned the uh, wage inflation potentially being structural in light of you know the recent rise of labor unions, I'd love for you to, to touch more on that and why you, uh, in your book, you talked more about wage inflation instead of just inflation in the broader economy in general. I'd love for you to talk more about that. Yeah, it it does seem like at least one element of inflation appears to be somewhat structural, and that is tied to the labor unions, as we just noted. But also, it does seem to me like some of the globalization the last 30 years is in a degree of structural retrenchment. And like so to the extent that we are having like more manufacturing in the United States well people here are going to command way higher wages than you know people m- making goods did in China for the the last 30 years so to the extent that a decent amount of that is structural it's inevitable that that element of inflation will remain elevated, at least relative to what it has been for the last 20 years or or so. And I think that I'm pretty confident that a portion of that is structural. It's difficult to say how this is going to play out with what's going on with the unionization. I mean, for a lot of younger people's lives, I mean, unions weren't were not even relevant at, at all. And it's really just in the last several years that we, we, we've seen this. And to the extent that that persists, that will also that will be a, a structural tailwind upward on, on on inflation. I don't I don't really know how all of that is going to to play out. But there are some there's some uh, counter inflationary forces as well. Like you're seeing a lot of countries or a lot of companies like big companies like, like Apple now investing big in India. So you, you are going to see, you know, some manufacturing and, and jobs shift there that are from China and they have low cost of labor. And we also have 
you know, ongoing technological innovation that is going to continue to be a, de- a deflationary force. But at least to me, it, it, it does look like that some of this wage inflation is, is going to be structural. And since you manage money professionally, I'm curious if you could paint some color on maybe business models that, you know, what you sort of look for in businesses in light of higher wage inflation or maybe just potentially higher inflation in general. You mentioned the uh, pricing power earlier. I'm curious if there's anything else worth highlighting here. Yeah, I I think during periods of elevated inflation, the, the companies that tend to perform the best or as you alluded to ones that are able to pass the costs along to the consumers and you know inversely the ones that do the worst are the ones that are not able to because then their profitability is eroded like the last few years you've seen sectors like the lower quality retailers like things like that they're they're not able to pass costs along they're they go from a, a really low net profit margin to a loss really quickly and that that's what always happens but there are sectors where their product is really important to people and they're able to pass along those costs i mean some of the higher quality consumer companies like pepsi like they they've been raising prices like crazy the last few years and their consumers have continued to buy their products because it's apparent from their behavior that they don't view, they view the switching costs as, as being high. So that, that's how I would think about it from a, a business context. I wanted to switch to a more unrelated, broader point here. One thing that stands out when looking at today's markets is the U.S.'s interest expense just exploding higher, becoming one of their uh, biggest expenses in light of interest rate increases and a lot of the debt that was issued at near zero is now rolling over and being issued at four, five percent. And that's making a huge, huge impact given where U.S. debt levels are today. I'm curious if you have a view on, you know, in studying these uh, past crises in history and past uh, civilizations such as the Roman Empire, if you have a view on the longer term implications of, you know, this exploding interest expense that, you know, is now in the trillion dollar range. The implications for what's going on with the the deficits and interest as as a result, particularly tied to the, the higher interest rates now, they're enormous. And to provide a baseline for this, what we're walking into is a, a situation where mandatory spending in, in the United States, uh, which includes things like Social Security, Medicare, that made up 61% of federal spending in, in 2019. And this figure in 1970 was only 30%. So when we factor in the higher interest ex- expense, we arrive, at least the way things are currently constructed, at uh, a scenario where... of the federal budget is now going to things that are not, that have nothing to do with investing for the future in in terms of growth. So we're really left with these options. And I note these in in my book. We can, you know, try and grow our way out of these deficits, which is what happened to a large extent after World War II. But where we are now, that's that's much more unlikely because uh, population growth now is much lower than after World War II. So that, that, that's going to make it a lot harder. You, you can't just have like ongoing productivity gains at 10% a year in perpetuity. That's just not a realistic expectation. One of the other options is to significantly raise taxes. And I, I don't think that the, there's really a doubt that at least to some degree, this will happen. But this will, in, in the process, will also hinder economic growth 
And one of the other options is we can have sustained cuts to federal expenditures. But at least from what I've seen, this really is almost never an option because sustained budget cuts are always politically unpopular. And politicians don't really have an incentive to do this because usually when things blow up, it's it's after they've already left. And so it's not on their their watch. Uh, like I, I don't know if you saw uh, in this past year when France tried to, to raise their, they introduced a bill to try and raise their retirement age from 62 to 64, which is, I don't think that that should have been a very big deal, but riots and protests broke out across the country. So once you give someone something, it's difficult to, to take that away. And then the last option, which we've done a lot of in recent years, is to print more money. And that doesn't resolve any of these problems, but it does kick the can down the road. And I don't have any doubt that we'll continue to do that. Well, Brendan, it's a very interesting book. I'm glad I had the opportunity to read it and bring you on the show to discuss it. Before I let you go, how about uh, I just give you a chance to uh, share any parting thoughts that you feel that are important that we haven't touched on today? Yeah, I don't know that I have anything that we haven't already touched on uh, other than I think it's important for people to learn from the past. And I hope that, you know, our listeners out there, you know, are constantly trying to learn from history and uh, applying that to today and the future. Awesome. Well, uh, before I let you go, I want to give you a chance to, uh, you know, let the audience know how they can get connected with you and uh, find out more about the book. Thanks, Clay. So you can find Markets in Chaos, a history of market crises around the world. Uh, if you just you know search on Amazon, it's also available through uh, my publisher, Business Expert Press, along with various other retail channels. And if you want to connect, you can uh, find me on LinkedIn. You can just search uh, Brendan Hughes, uh, comma CFA, and then type in you know Lafayette Investments, my my company, or my book Markets in Chaos, and I'm, I'm sure it'll, it'll come up. Wonderful. Well, thanks again, Brandon. Really, really appreciate it. Thanks a lot for having me, Clay. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network and learn how to achieve financial independence. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.